0: hello we are the manic street speakers the library is our church sylvia plath is a dj it's episode it's episode 10 and coming up we have an in-depth interview with the annoyingly multi-talented journalist and musician john robb the b side of the show is prologue to history and listener george takes on the crucifix quiz but first let me introduce you to a woman who doesn't sleep by herself she sleeps on herself it's emma Hello. (laughs) I sleep on myself. See, I was wondering if that was going to be a bit too oblique.
1: (laughs) I I need explanation. Oh, my mattress is an Emma mattress. Yay. Oh, well done. Now I feel like, I mean, my intro for you is quite deep and meaningful. (laughs) Not going (laughs) to
0: lie. Just to point out, we are not sponsored by Emma mattresses.
1: No, but if they do want to send me any more of their pillows, that would be great
0: so have you you, have you got the full set are you just an emma pillow and a denise
1: mattress (laughs) i have an emma mattress and i have an emma pillow which my mum got me and i've always been a two pillow gal and with a memory foam pillow you can't really have two you have to just have the one and at first i was like i'm not going to get used to this i'm not going to like it i like two pillows it's also a little bit hard but now i cannot imagine sleeping on anything else it's so comfortable So, um, yeah, if they want to send me a backup for if this one dies somehow.
0: Do a really convincing advert voice. Emma Mattresses.
1: Emma. (laughs) That's as far as I could get. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, uh, hang on a second. For your peace of mind and a night's sleep your body will thank you for. Emma. There you go.
0: (laughs) Also... What are you wearing?
1: Nothing. (laughs) I'm in my jammies (laughs) and a dressing gown. But I am in bed because my bed is so damn comfortable. Get an Emma Mattress, everyone. Would you like to hear your intro? Go for it. I put a great deal of thought into this. I hope you know.
0: Are you saying I didn't?
1: No, of course not. I loved my Emma Mattress. Tangential. Genital. Anyway, I'm going to shut up.
0: Leave my genitals out of it.
1: (laughs) him in a week where it's been emotional and at times infuriating to be a woman openly talking about their experience of sexual assault and abuse my host of this part sorry your host of this podcast remains one of the few men on twitter i haven't blocked in a rage because he's genuinely one of the good ones and i know if covid weren't an issue he'd probably join me to protest the government potentially banning protests it's mikey
0: Thank you very much. I was worried where that was going for a minute. I thought, is there some dark secret that I don't even know about?
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I I have been reliving a lot of shit this week on Twitter. Uh, It's kind of been like Me Too Too on Twitter, if you are a woman, uh, this week. And it has been hugely pointless I'm gonna say I know that sounds awful and we shouldn't say stuff like that but my god it has felt pointless at one point I literally told the story of a sexual assault I experienced like must have been probably about 17 18 years ago which is still burnt onto my brain because as anybody who has experienced something like that will tell you it doesn't just go away you know it lives in a corner of your mind that occasionally you sort of open the door and go oh god it's still there and then slam it shut again and I told this story because I was trying to explain to a man who I should not have bothered engaging with that you know when women say we we know it's not all men we're not saying it's all men we're just saying we don't know which ones it is that the reason we say it is because of instances like the one I was describing and he came back at me and went So you knew this person. So it was someone you knew. So it wasn't a a stranger. And it was a stranger. And I don't know where he got. It was someone I knew from. And I said to him, no, I had literally just met this person. And he went, well, it's not my fault. You can't explain yourself properly, is it? And at that point, I just thought, I'm going to kill everyone. (laughs) There's there's going to be just a mass explosion because I have just combusted with rage.
0: The problem is... Last week has been pretty, well, upsetting on Twitter, to be it fair, happens. but the way I viewed it is you, you'll yeah. always get reply guys, mm. no matter what, whether it's about any subject, if a woman's talking about it, whether it's about their own personal experience or whether it's their opinion on something, you'll always get reply guys, and what the, way, the angle I've really gone with it this week on Twitter is, read reading what people's experiences are and believing them Mm. and that's it not not interfering going well you know why this why that and what the the, the fact is these things have happened and these are people's you you can't it's dismissing people's lived experience
1: yeah (laughs) but that is why mikey i mean it very genuinely you are a good guy and like i know that I could sit down in a room and have a proper long chat with you and be like, this happened, this happened. And you would be supportive and understanding and not remotely dismissive. And I just, I kind of want to just give you a shout out (laughs) for being that person because I have come across so many dickheads this week who have just told me, well, you asked for that. What were you wearing? And I'm just about, like I said, to combust with absolute (laughs)
0: rage. It is better just when you get a reply like that, just... Lock.
1: They just decide in advance, you are a misandrist, you want me to be castrated or something. And I'm just like, no, no, I just want you to listen and, yeah. you know, maybe call your friends out when they do shit that they shouldn't do. But, you know, fine, okay, I'm just, yeah. My block button has been used so much this week, I think it's probably now broken. We have gone in very deep, very early, as the actress said to the bishop. <laughs>
0: here's another thing I also survived a bomb blast
1: you did and
0: I nearly made that your intro but I was genuinely so desperate to be like Mikey It's so nice it's such, it's such a weird thing because it had been in the national news I live in Exeter it'd been in the national news I'd heard it on the radio that day there's a bomb. there's a, a world war bomb that's been found didn't really think anything of it because you hear those things don't you mm. all the yeah. t- kind of all the time and you think well they'll no, it'll come of nothing i was dropping um some shopping off to a friend on on a sunday evening just walking down the river music blaring as i always do
2: mm-hmm.
0: and in the distance it was like almost like a really bad movie <laughs> a massive plume of smoke probably about like a mile high went up and i just yeah. stopped and like just thought what the f-? you know I didn't know what it was. I didn't associate it with with what I'd heard on the radio earlier that day. And then all of a sudden, a boom, huge boom, which apparently was heard about 10 to 15 miles away. (laughs) And I I was just like, whoa. And like, I walked walked a bit further up and uh, people were like, oh, we've been expecting that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well sorry you knew what time it was going off oh yeah between 5.30 and 7 we've been here for half an hour we've... I know 2021 is a weird year but just <laughs> just, just, like, just to see a bombed explosion before you as you're just dropping some shopping off
1: one of my favourite things about this story however is that the Daily Mail asked if they could use your photo and you just <laughs> went nope <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yes, Mikey, yes. Yes. If the Daily Mail asked me, can we show your picture? How would I word it? And I was like getting, you were so much better than me because I would have been like, whilst I'm sure that you personally are fine, you work for a paper whose morals I find repugnant. (laughs) But frankly, just no, is fine.
0: I think it was like no tar.
1: It was the casual nature of it. I was just like, well played.
0: All right, shall we get into the news? Yes. The Anchoress has finally released her new album, The Art of Losing. Um, previously, we mentioned that Show Your Face features uh, James on guitar, but uh, the new single as well also features James on guitar and vocals, so it's a duet. But I love it. Yeah, what do you think of it?
1: I really like it. I've only listened to it a couple of times so far. But I I do genuinely really like it it it's sort of their voices go quite well together i think
0: they do yeah and after all james's deep voice in that um even in exile Mm. In the verses, he's reaching really high notes.
1: That was one of the things I thought when I first listened to it. I was like, Oh, we've gone from this, <laughs> James, and now we've got like almost the little the little screech that he does. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know when he's like he really gets into a higher note and he's like ah, and I'm like yes, yes, I haven't heard that for a while.
0: No, I love it. It's a really sweeping piano epic, anthemic chorus. I think it's a real grower.
3: And now your faith in possession is just this week's new obsession. There's much to gain, it's part of the exchange. So it comes as no surprise. Not just out to compromise. So now it seems you're gone.
0: news that feels like an update of the same news from about a year ago Uh, the Halifax Peace Hall gig (laughs) again has been moved to 10th of September this year Um, I saw you were considering going to this
1: the the trouble is I'd have to come home on my birthday and I don't know if I fancy spending my entire birthday doing doing what's probably going to be a six six and a half hour drive at least
0: Well, no, I think what what would be the best bet, because we still haven't heard about the Cardiff NHS gigs, Mm, which I'm surprised because they're still, as things stand, taking place in July.
1: Yeah.
0: Which I can't see. But I would say out of of the two, that would be the best bet to go.
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: And lastly, in news, the banned states supporting the killers have now been postponed until May 2022. Uh, Bristol, Coventry and Middlesbrough have now moved to late May and early June rightio let's step into the b-side prologue to history it is a b-side to if you tolerate this then your children will be next and was released on 24th of august 1998 Emma, far
1: away. I have written notes. Him. Why do I always do that? <laughs> you always do that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Everything about this song screams too bloody good to be a B-side. From the frantic piano intro to the many Ritchie references in the lyrics, it's a gold mine of treasures for Mannix fans to unearth. Today, a poet who can't play guitar gave me a description for myself when I was in my late teens and part of a band. I wrote the lyrics but never got beyond two or three chords when it came to the guitar. This song was one of the first Mannix B-sides I was absolutely obsessed with. I've always loved the way James leaves the chorus hanging when he sings a prologue to his stir, cue the twinkly music before the piano and guitars kick back in. That moment where it hangs in the air for just a few seconds feels so exceptionally loaded. Special mention to James's almost sarcastic delivery of I'm Bruce Fruit but still tastes so nice. I save five stars for the absolute perfection of songs like Design for Life, but for me, this is simply too good to say four stars. So I'm breaking the rules and adding a half and you can't stop me. <laughs> it <laughs> should have been on the album, but in place of SYMM and Not Nobody Loved You, because it's a bloody belter.
0: True. Um, you mentioned it early on there. Let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. Mm-hmm. All this debate of should it have been been on the album.
1: Yes. Yes, 100 Now, when I first asked myself this question, I asked myself this question when it came out, pretty much. And I was like, do you know what? No, because it doesn't go with the kind of feel of This Is My Truth. It's all very sort of acoustic. It's very sweeping. This is quite, you know, choppy. It doesn't fit. But then I thought about it, and I thought, well, actually... And i'm very i am a very enthusiastic defender of nobody loved you so when they released it and got rid of that and put prologue on i was like okay you've you've done one good thing here and then you've gone and done another bad thing (laughs) no um i think you can get away with it you know it's got all these lovely sweeping soaring acoustic gently well not really gentle but you know that sort of Vibe to it, but then it has got songs with a, a sort of a bigger chorus and a little bit more to it. I think it would have been a brilliant album closer because you've gone through all of this acoustic, mm. sweepy vibe, and then you get to this thing at the end and you're like, oh, Whoa, where are they going to go next? I think it would have ended the album bloody brilliantly.
0: I'd never thought of it as an album ender, but you, I think you're under something there thematically. I suppose they would say it doesn't fit in with the- with, mm. This is my truth, but I've never got right like, back in the dark ages when we listened to CD singles, yes. and it and this followed. If you tolerate this, mm. I ne- I never thought. Oh well, those two don't go together. They're jarring. I think it would fit somewhere, and like you say, maybe at the end of the album is is a way to go.
1: That's what I think. I mean, you've got quite early on in the album, you've got "You Stole the Sun from My Heart," which is. That stands out, I think, from the rest of the album because it has that sort of faster pace, the more sort of chunky guitar in it. It's not that sort of melancholic. I mean, it is melancholic, but it's a different kind of vibe. And then I think to you'd almost bookend. I know the album obviously doesn't open with um, You of the Sun, but it's very early on. And then if you had this at the end, it would just be a nice sort of bookend, I think.
0: Lyrically, it's a collage of Nikki's Minds, whether it's like Ooh. pop culture figures or moments in history uh, i mean it's very nicky there's lots of sporting references as well like yeah. S- steve over who was an english runner who won olympic gold neil kinnock mm. um and the labor see i think neil, neil kinnock i'm sure i read somewhere that james used to live on the same street he neil- did
1: live on the same street as neil kinnock yes
0: bill bennett a rugby player that mixes in with really weird references like dyson <laughs> and you know this is peak Nikki I Love Hoovering era.
1: It's also got the word decadence which I was really pleased with because that word was like Generation Terrorists was sponsored
0: by the word decadence.
1: <laughs> and then when you hear it in this song it's like oh he hasn't strayed from his roots.
0: <laughs> it's such a mad mashup of song because along with the weird pop culture references and the occasional political ones like mentioning of the private sector and uh uh, remember ethnic cleansing in the Highlands? No one says a thing in the middle of England. Yep. There's also this weird added drama of those hints to, to Richie, mm. my former friend who's now undercover. Considering how soon this is, yeah, um, today amazed. a poet who can't play guitar.
1: Yeah, I was like, I remember the first time I heard this song when they when he says, "My former friend who's now undercover," I had two thoughts, <laughs> and they were very like immediate thoughts. My first one was like former your former friend how dare you you supposed to be he's supposed to be one of your best friends surely he's not your former friend even if he's not around he's still your friend and i think i was very young and hormonal that's the reason for that reaction but then i was like who's now undercover and i remember having this whole conversation with my sister we were like do they know where he is and it lasted for like five minutes because obviously I don't believe the Mannix know where Richie is. I didn't really even believe it then. But you had this moment of my former friend who's now undercover. What does that mean?
0: Lyrically, it's so expressive, this song. Even if it's just oh. a mad jumble. We've not even mentioned I water my plants with Evian. I'm talking rubbish to cover up the cracks, an empty vessel who can't make contact james's rasping powerful delivery and it, not just that line just throughout the whole song
1: yeah i am obsessed with the way he sings i know i've mentioned it i just love the way he sings i'm bruised fruit but still tastes so nice <laughs> it's <laughs> just like yeah you do
0: <laughs> it's just really high octane and pulsating and it, it only really relents right at the end it does that fade whirring out kind of thing it's like it's <laughs> That to me is like it's batteries running out. Um, what do you think is the, the ultimate message of the song? Because it is so... I love the fact it's all, so all over the place. But what do you what do you get from it?
1: My... I think to me... And I'm... Nobody email in, alright? This is just my brain. I'm not saying this is what it means. I To me, I always took it as... I don't want to be... I took it quite literally. Basically, I I kind of wanted, I kind of saw it as like when people talk about the Manics or when people talk about my life. I don't want them to just see, oh yeah, that's that band with the one who went missing, or you know, oh that's the you know, the the one where they had some big comment that like got loads of newspaper headlines. I and also I kind of so on that hand, I thought of it as like I want there to be more than just. Oh, Nikki, yeah, he did this. And it'd be literally just, I'm known for this sound bite, or I'm known because my friend did this thing. But I also, on a less personal level, I, I saw it as almost Nikki sort of being like, well, I don't want to just be sort of like living through a, a build up to something. I kind of want to be a part of something, but at the same time, I can't be bothered to be a part of it I know yeah. that sounds really bizarre but th- 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 I, that's, the, that's the sort of way I always looked at it
0: Yeah, I, I can see what you mean I get vibes of along the lines of try, try hard and you will achieve something mm. I if you if you can keep talking about not, not not this is a literal translation but if you keep thinking about doing something and you don't do something you won't imprint yourself yeah. You won't make your mark. Next year, the world's greatest politician. Yesterday, the boy who once had a mission.
1: I love that line. Setting
0: yeah. out to achieve something.
1: And I completely agree with you. The fact that he's sort of saying, I don't want to be a prologue to history. Part of me takes, like I said, part of me takes it as like, I don't want to be the sort of run up to a big story that doesn't involve me, but, or rather involves me, but isn't about me. Yeah. And then the other part of me is like, I want to be a part of the history. I don't want to just be like a footnote.
0: They reference Sean William Ryder, who's the singer of the Happy Mondays, obviously, but there is a baggy piano beat yeah to it and i wonder if that's literal because they're referencing him and they're alluding to baggy
1: Mm, there's a very there's almost you can almost hear the who's going to step on you again can't you yeah
0: it also reminds me of late 80s early 90s club kind of beat to it Mm. that piano yeah take the guitars out and it would be an easy fit really definitely okay i put this to twitter for me it's a four and a half as well just yeah yeah, it's pretty much perfect Five stars, got 64%. Ooh. Four stars, got 27%. Three stars, 5%. And wait for it, and prepare yourself.
1: I'm preparing.
0: Three percent, gave it two stars.
1: Who are these people? Who would give two stars to Prologue? Why?
0: Show your faces.
1: (laughs) Come at me, bitch. I want to (laughs) know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay uh mr teen word power like most i love it and i prefer it to many tracks from this is my truth the manchester style beat yeah he's mentioned that as well and a chorus that has no right to be hidden away as a mere b-side yep. however i give it a four and that is because the way the vocals are produced or should I say not produced, bugs me particularly in the verses. He comes out in belting out the words, yet still sounds as if he's fighting to be heard. It's almost as if they decided the song wouldn't make the cut before it was even finished. See, I love I love the rawness of the vocals. It
1: is a very... But it's funny, I have never thought of it like that. But there is a certain element of James having to shout to be heard, and I've never thought of that before.
0: He's fighting with the music, isn't he? He's, hmm. he's... yeah. And that to me gives it that excitement.
1: I think it, I think I use the word frantic and I think that adds to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Fran has written my favorite manic song ever should have been a single
1: I mean I'm not go- I'm not gonna disagree.
0: I'm not sure about a single.
1: I don't know I just think I just think it's so good and I kind of want more people to have heard it.
0: It probably would have done well in the charts, and it is catchy.
1: Yeah. I feel like if you had gone with that instead of maybe Tsunami, you could have done that. I'm Bruce
3: Bruce.
0: time for the finger of manic's past
1: i'm scared of the finger of manic's past
0: this finger is attached to a nice guy remember
1: it is tm trademark nice guy
0: okay i need to find my list where's my list gone right i want you to <laughs> it never gets any easier this bit okay <laughs> say stop whenever you are ready
1: Stop whenever you are ready.
0: Nice, nice work. Anti-Social Manifesto.
1: Ooh,
0: okay. So we will cover that in the next episode and I will put a survey out on the Twitter sphere. <laughs> next up is my interview with John Robb. John has decades of experience on both sides of music, reviewing and performing. We only had about an hour and a half really but his passion and knowledge just shone through.
4: ideas and you know it's an education idea that's coming together uh, because because we're thinking that the people who are in the country got the best education to get in Britain and aren't doing a very good job and all the smart kids are actually stuck in towns you know the, your holes, yeah. the stokes for a smart resource people never get a chance they can't get in and so we're, just, we're trying to get this kind of little and it's actually got quite a lot of backers now but interesting. Trying to rejig this but you know what England's like it's such a, a staid old place I mean how much ch- change can you make but figuring instead
0: of complaining about it maybe you know, trying to do something about it but you do hit a lot of brick walls Trying, so to do it almost there. like trying to change the mentality of it
4: yeah or, or just establishment mm. I mean obviously they don't want to
0: change
4: it do they, cause no. it's, it works very well for them yeah that suits them
0: having been a creator of music why the leap to being a music critic as well as a performer obviously, because the two worlds are colliding with you.
4: Well, it's, it's actually quite a normal thing now. There's a lot of musicians... I mean, Six Music is pretty well made up of people who are musicians playing records, although maybe there's, there's a little bit of a veneer, a celebrity coach there, you know, getting Iggy Pop to play records like this show. is actually really good. Guy Garvey as well. And, I mean, when I was when in it years ago, it was quite rare... I mean, it wasn't totally unknown, but it's quite rare for a musician to write or communicate about any of the music apart from the music keep making themselves but to me it seemed like quite a normal thing coming out of um, you know of punk culture because it was all about fanzines and bands and it was all DIY mm. so it's, to me it seemed completely normal to um, write about music as well as playing it and you, and you didn't need any it wasn't at that time you needed any training to do it you just went and did it you know it wasn't by now people go to colleges to learn how to be in a band, or or how to write about music, but I don't. I mean, fair enough, but I don't think it really works. That I think it's to me, it's, it's writing. Uh, I mean, the great thing about music and music culture, it's a space for the amateur, isn't it? And you just yeah. do things on your own terms, your own way, like you're doing your podcast. You learn as you go along. You're just communicating an idea of your love of the manics and the culture goes around them, and you do it in your own voice. There is no proper way of doing it. Right, you know, it's,
0: that's it. It's, I mean, I
4: try, yeah, they try and teach you there's a proper way to do it that kills it really because it makes everything a slightly different version of the same thing was well, that fair if it's more open and you just do it and that's it I mean we're not we're not on a, in the a middle of a war in Syria reporting on the front line where there probably is rules otherwise you get blown up I mean this this is a this is music writing it's experimental it's free form it could be as staid and as dull as you want or completely off, off his own head as you want
0: that's it. Like you to write about it in the first place, you've got to have the passion about it when you're younger. So it's natural then to some people to progress to being performers, I suppose. It just seemed the same thing to me. Yeah. I thought playing about music being about. I mean, everybody talks about music. So it's just about writing it
4: down. Yeah. So it, it didn't. It never to me. It never seemed like a contrasting thing to me. They just seemed to really entwine.
0: When I last moved house, I I discovered an old, a load of paper, literally homemade magazines I'd written, and like I'd cut out pictures and put it in and do news features and like features on albums and things. And I thought in uh, nineteen ninety uh, five I was fifteen, and to me, I guess my focus is now is away from the print media because that's not so much a thing anymore, and I'm just pushing it through in podcast or. Or in writing my own blog, where I do reviews and things like that. So it's always there. It's just unfortunately I can't pay, play an instrument. <laughs> That's the problem. Well, you, you, you could, you could, if you wanted to make music, you could. I you mean, you don't much have to be able to play an instrument to make music. I and mean, then we learned that point as well. Yeah. You like, could just you could just hit the strings of a guitar into a rhythm, and just do poetry over the top. There's no. I think I'd end up more like jazz from Peep Show. <laughs> <laughs>
4: if you just follow your instincts, you may end up somewhere else, you know, it's, 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 it's a funny thing, music, it doesn't, there, there is no, has to be done in a certain way, if you know what I mean, there's no, there's no rules, there should never ever be rules, really, you know, it's, it's open, and I think that's also quite interesting for the Manics, isn't it, because there definitely are two ends of that spectrum, aren't they? you've got fantastic musicians like James, and, you know, and, and Sean, and then you have the other two, we weren't particularly uh, musicians, but I mean, obviously they understood music inside out, but they're more about the culture in the, you know, that went around it. So they're more like the DIY ends of the band. But those roles flipped around quite a lot, which is also interesting, it? I always think. Mm. Uh, it's very rare that you find somebody who could play the whole Becumpte and roses album on their guitar, like James, who actually totally understands DIY music and making music with no natural musical ability but you can still make it so he'd be able to communicate with the, other people in the band because he understands that which is for most people like James and sort of people you get in guitar shops is kind of pretty sniffy about suddenly can't play an instrument in a guitar shop <laughs> yeah. whereas, whereas to him that'd be fascinating and he understands that and yeah so I think that that's I mean, that, that's one of the dynamics that's always been uh, key to our band I
0: think well that's it like essentially bar the lyrics it, the Debut album is essentially a solo album, a James solo album. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it isn't, isn't it? That's the great yeah. thing. It? Cause yeah, yeah, yes, of course. His talent's
4: created that record, and it's it's like a mainstream record that isn't a mainstream record because of the lyrics, and and because of the attitude of the band, and also because he steps back a bit. He was a he was a singer who wasn't the man in a sense. He was he was just as important to what uh, you know Richie, Nicky were doing as what he was doing. And it was just as important, the fact that, you know, they, they weren't brilliant players initially, you know. It, it didn't matter, you know. I mean, normally, if you were making a really slick, you know, music record, you, you would tolerate having two people. You know, just a bass player play the root notes. I mean, and actually, Richie was never as bad a guitar player as he likes to make out. No. I mean, I've seen him playing. He would, he would be holding A chord. <laughs> and you could hear, he was, was playing like on the root chords, only both sides. kind of James. Gene you know, which is actually quite effective. Sometimes it's all you need as well, you know.
0: Uh, what was your first introduction to the Man Extended? Did you see them live?
4: No, no. Uh, uh, Richie sent me a demo years and years ago with a stamped address envelope. Inside. Oh wow!
0: It was it one of <laughs> was it one of his uh, manifestos?
4: Yeah, it's a really long letter about everything he hated,
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, but also everything they liked and. and i got the letter somewhere but it's like a whole
4: page it was, this is before no, nobody had computers of course and nobody had word processors or typewriters it was all handwritten, written and mm. it was it was like saying how much sure because I not want to that for ages, but sure it's going about how much they like you know the stuff they normally like you know I'm sure they said stuff about The Clash and Guns N' Roses and Big Flame you know but then he also said they liked ones of stuff One one impressive I can't really if he really liked and really hated him. I can't which way around it was but I think it was more like they liked him in a way that later on those would be bands that were targets for them but I think in the earlier periods they were bands that were actually quite nice you know and uh, yeah so it's a dam- so they sent me demo I thought the demo was great told a few people about it um, I, d- I was going to write for- I tried to get it into sound really early on but it just never seemed to get it done uh, and then I- what happened next then I remember um, I remember Captain Oi. the guy who was Captain Oi. he mentioned that and he passed the demo on to Damaged Goods, did he? So it was it was Mark from Captain Oi. He's so key in that story. But never, but he doesn't like take credit for anything. But he's basically the one who got them the deal by default because mm. he, he was. I think he was working at Cherry Red there and doing all of punk stuff. Because this is interesting about the Maliks, isn't it? Because they, they definitely thought they were a punk band when they started, and they were coming into that um, the, the late '80s punk scene, which was which which mean, really, you know, UK subs are a great rock and roll band, great punk band, but the, the Manics were different from that, and I think the punk scene definitely had an idea of what it was meant to sound like at that point, and the Manics didn't fit into it, so I, I, mean, I remember I always played TJs in Newport, my bands, and going there, and they, people talked about them there, as this band that came from up in the valleys, who were, um, they couldn't work out for a glam, sort of lipsticky sticky choir, choir boys type of band, and, they, they were not part of that Newport scene either they sort of floated on the edges of it because that Newport scene was very too American underground and hardcore as well so they, they were kind of misfits misfits weren't they, they didn't, even though they, the local I mean, TJ's was the most amazing
0: venue and audience and a pretty all-encompassing but they didn't fit into that either I, I, I think, think they was, were, I think they were a collage of everything and that's why people were confused by them
4: the collage thing I totally got though because to me collage is punk rock you know yeah. people you can't define what punk rock is, you have your own version, so my version of punk rock, and this is a fanzine version of it, it's very much a cut-and-paste culture, so due the fanzine, it was cut-and-paste, you cut loads of other magazines up and stick them down and phone-copy it, and you have artwork, and the museum's cut-and-paste, it was cut-and-pasting all different musical cultures and sticking it back together in a different order, so that are sort a of continuation of that, and it's very homespun as well, it's kitchen table, isn't it, so it's sitting there in the kitchen table with a print stick and a tie and a pair of scissors making our artwork out
0: nothing you know yeah <laughs> which, which, which they did musical didn't they? yeah absolutely uh, they kind of had such contradicting look and they said they were punk rock but to me if you listen to their early stuff they sound kind of like 80s American rock like smooth produced yeah. polished and so it, and then their live shows were completely different from what they sounded like on record well I think uh, what, what their
4: ambition is what crashed them against the sea because by then it was all about being in the underground and it's like a very walled-in sea so whether you wanted it or not on a band you had to be in the underground you know there was a mainstream that was the, where the, where the, that was the devil's place <laughs> and that was the, it was the underground which, which is where all the, the holy saints went but the Mannix right from their very early interviews would we'll talk about going into the mainstream which rubbed up against the underground didn't it because people didn't like that and they didn't like the band's ambition but, you know, it's, it's easy to have no ambition if, if you're well off, you know. it's. I mean, it's, I, I've never met a band actually ever wanting to actually really be in the undergrounds. It's more of a, a press construct. Or mm. they prefer. And, and also, I think, in a lot of ways, if you've got something really interesting to say, they prefer you say it to nobody. So, <laughs> they're quite happy to siphon everyone off into the undergrounds. I mean, there's a lot of amazing music underground. the But if anybody thinks that people like The Falls sat there deliberately trying to be an underground band, they've got this whole thing wrong, you know. I mean, the bands on the floor would try and do anything to get a hit record, mm. you know, it's because because I mean, it's one, it's practical, you need to survive, and two, it's if, if you really believe in the art of music you're making, you want to play it to as many people who would potentially like it as possible. There's nothing more frustrating for a band to know there's 50,000 people who'd really like their music but are never going to hear it.
0: Yeah, that's or, it. I've never understood the, the snobbery. I've never understood the snobbery about... A band wanting to sell records and wanting to play to a few people because it's more the media.
4: They wanted to keep them as little pets on chains, you mm-hmm. know. Because then the bands uh, desperately rely on the media, don't they? It's, you know, it, it's they, they, they have to at the time. They'd have to keep in with John Peel. They'd have to keep in with the music papers. Otherwise, they'd be, they would even get into the underground. That would be locked up. They'd be locked out of that. So, so, the Manic's ambition rubbed really badly against people. It's a misinterpretation mis- of punk rock, really. People thought that punk rock was this uh, underground culture, but I'm old enough to know that punk rock was pop music. You know, that's what was great about it. Yeah. The Sex, Sex Pistols were a pop band. You know, they they were trying they were trying to have a more on record. They were trying to take the message, whatever message they had, because it's very chaotic. But right into the heart of British culture, which is which is a fantastic ambition, isn't it? You know instead of sitting there watching top of the pops time to could play about every band on it why don't you go on it and make it better you know it's i know it poisons eventually poisons everybody because success doesn't do people that much good either but there was a glorious period of a couple of years when when they have an art the way they want it and it's right in the middle of everything and it and it makes people feel amazing i mean i grew up in blackpool and if and the, and the clash didn't want to go on top of the pops because they're too snobby to go on top of the pops, and thinking, but well, we can't see you, you know, we're 15,
3: mm-hmm.
4: we're in Blackpool, you don't play Blackpool, you know, and it's our connection to you is through looking at murky pictures in the music press, and your records, you know, and, and yes, it keeps me sneaking in the sense, but you don't get the visceral performance, which even on top of the pops, even if it was mined, you know, at the time, because, you know, the sound, talk about this now sounds pretty crazy, but without YouTube, or any of these things, you couldn't see anything, you had no idea what these things look like, yeah. how they moved and how they, you know, the the way people move when they play their music is a part of music, because that's what pop culture is. It's not just music. I mean, if they they stand there and give an anti-performance and not really bored, it's a fantastic performance as well, you know. But how would you know that? Because you couldn't see it if, if you lived in a, you know, a town that nobody ever toured through.
0: Yeah, that's it. You mentioned The Clash and Sex Pistols, and you've been making music since the late 70s and writing for the likes of Melody Maker and Sounds. And you've seen so many cultural shifts within music, punk, grunge, baggy, Britpop, and lots in between. Do these things feel as exciting at the time as they appear in hindsight? Or or, or do we kind of maybe look romantically at the past? Uh, well, yeah, I think what, what problem it has is people think their past is the all-encompassing version of the past. Yes. And there is
4: no, there is no other past, you know.
0: And and, well, and the theory that new music isn't as good as old music.
4: Oh, I can't stand that. Yeah. That's, that's just what... I mean, I think there's probably a natural process where things meant more to you when you were younger because, I mean, there's no way a band of 18-year-olds is going to change your life when you're in your 50s. That would just be a bit weird, wouldn't it? But you can still listen to their music and think, fuck, that's amazing. Mm. Oh, that's clever. Or, or it could still move you in a different way. I mean, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be like to change my life like it. I mean that that, that just been possible, you
0: know, it's because you were young then. You know, yeah, I mean, and I guess when you're much... you're younger, you're you're more open to things and and things feel more exciting, I guess, and you're growing up and you associate that with that time, I guess. So when you're in a say you're working in an office and you hear a brilliant album walking to work, you don't you won't have that same romanticism as you did when you were doing exciting things when you're younger, I guess, but it doesn't mean the music's any worse.
4: Well, there's, yeah, there's another factor in that as well, because because suppose
0: when you're young, you don't have a responsibility. That's it,
4: yeah. soundtrack to, to your freedom. So when, when that was about, that the to and there's 10,000 middle-aged people there jumping up and down, everyone kind of gets, it doesn't, not they get sniffy about it. Well, they're reliving youth. Yes, they are reliving their youth, because that was a point in their lives when they were totally free and that, that band represented themselves at that moment and for two hours they can, they can go back into that moment they don't have the luxury of extending that freedom out on their whole lives you know life isn't like that you know and it, in a way it's a brilliant thing that you, can, you know you get that space to reconnect with maybe the real version of yourself before you went you got into the tunnel of life you know yeah. So, and that, that's much. I mean, music works in so different ways, doesn't it? I mean, yes, it can be nostalgic. It can be forward-thinking. I mean, sometimes go see you just want them to play the hits because they, they they lost the mojo somewhere. But if they um, but if they can still play the hits in a brilliant way with some kind of passion intensity, it's going to connect, you know, with people. In order to other bands, you don't want them to play hits. You want to keep moving forwards. Every every band's got a different strength, you know, a different thing that it's good at, a different meaning to its audience so those moments in the past it's, it's, a, it's a personal question I mean Punk was amazing for me it was, it was powerful and the followers those records now they still feel powerful and amazing mm. and thrilling and exciting. but do I sit there all day listening to them no what, because I deliberately try not to because you go down the rabbit hole you can't get back out again you know it's, and it's I mean
0: nostalgia is great because there's a nice warm glow to nostalgia but you don't want to live there do you that's it yeah most people my age are pretty stuck with listening to music from the 90s and i i just think there's too much out there there's too much exciting stuff out there so yes i do love my bands from the 90s but i just there's so much himalayas is a band i know you like and yeah. I saw them live about a year and a half ago and I felt that same feeling of of just intensity and passion and it was such an amazing gig and I just had all those emotions that I would have had seeing bands when I was 17.
4: It's interesting isn't it because a lot of the new music you tend to go towards is kind of a version of the old music you liked. Kind of, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah, so do, do I look everything through a filter of punk rock or probably do in a sense even though it could be you know, electronic music or whatever, but the words you would use to describe why it worked really well were the kind of words you would describe to like music 40 years ago. So maybe, maybe it is a trap that you can't get out of, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. You kind and, of in a loop. Other hand, if, you know, if, you, if you're just um, a person who doesn't work at music, it's fair enough
4: to like, that's good. But was Spotify did that survey, what they said, when people are 23, they list the most diverse musical Spotify, when they're 27. Yeah
0: they listen to the same three groups all the time
4: like uh, they've found their little corner they're not going to leave it yeah
0: found their comfort zone
4: yeah but they've got better things to do you know yeah because I'm involved
0: in music and yeah. I keep actively looking for, for new sensations
4: things but even maybe looking for new stuff maybe that's nostalgic because that reminds me in that pump period every week there'd be three or four great seven inch singles and it was a relentless rush forward it's part of the way I turned to Paul was that thing of always going forwards you know like the John Peel show was always going forwards but maybe that's a nostalgia as well maybe that's a different way related to music it doesn't really you know it might exist. I mean it probably does exist now but that was that was a key talent at the time
0: yeah um, can you ever predict what will become mainstream or is it just a lottery is it just chance it's, it's, it's down to situation or circumstance
4: it's Sometimes you get a thing, you can sort of tell, but but you know you can see some but some bands who should be massive, you know, were obviously going to be massive. It didn't happen, you know, because because the culture changed or they just blew it or they ran out of energy or they ran out of band members. Some people have all the right things in the right place, but you just think they're just going to be like it's just not going to happen, you know. You can see. I mean, it's, Save the Stone Roses in 87, it's just seen that everything that, that was correct, that was right there, but it was, um, but, it, but it was, the culture wasn't in the right place, but when everyone started taking ecstasy, it changed. A sort of psychedelic, tinged indie bands made complete sense culturally, so there they were, right? And the Mondays as well, so you, you could sort of, you can sense those bands and everything that was needed to get big, but what would the culture you know, because culture used to change a lot then, didn't it? It, would, mm. it was switching one style and sound to another all the time, wasn't it? Whereas, whereas, whereas now everything kind of runs in parallel all at the same time. So, it's, it's, you know, if, if you want to make psychedelic rock music, you'll probably find a scene that'll support that around the world. And again, again, you'd be stuck in some weird worldwide underground But the other thing that's quite weird now is the underground is almost as big as the mainstream, and it's so you can be, you can be like two or who are number one album over the world that most people never heard of them. I remember speaking, speaking to people in six Music, quite high up in six Music. About, I, was, I was doing a show, actually, I was a show idea. And I said, you know, you don't, you don't, read, don't play stuff like Bauhaus, goth music, experimental end of metal, because metal's actually where rock music actually has uh, the most experimentation, because indie music is pretty well a tradition It doesn't change an awful lot if you look at the edges of metal like black metal or not lot Norwegian bands they go off and do some really completely mad weird trips like mm. techno you know like all the stuff like goes to Hollywood now or Wardroona do like Viking music so they go they off <laughs> mad journeys from t- fascinating journeys music and then I do go we don't know these bands I go well what about Tool no one plays Tool on the radio and they who are they I was going uh, the number one in America this week and am the number one in a uh, in the UK, it's a worldwide number one album. They all <laughs> the stadiums in America, but they do this post-punk prog metal crossover. So it's kind of like Rush and the Dead Kennedys all mixed and matched together in one thing. Well, they don't really sound like anybody else, but but they but they don't exist on the radar, no. which is uh, which is interesting, you know. It? So it's in a way, they are a massive underground band who are mainstream. And it's it's quite alternative music. Is not really alternative? Is it sort of thing, so you know? See. You'll get to sort of that six music, you know, and it's great. It's got its role, it does what it does. But there's so many musics that can't get on it. You know, they just sort of fall off the
0: edge. But this is it. Can there really be an underground when essentially all music is as accessible as each other? It's, 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 just, just, a, where, it's just where, it, like you say, whether it finds an audience by being on the radio or... or well, it gets, the thing, you know, that thing, push. extra push it's all,
4: it's all accessible because you can put it on the internet, but can anyone, is anybody there to know you put it on the
0: internet? Yeah, is anyone there you to know, always, advertise it, really? It,
4: you go to music conferences and young bands there and they always ask for advice and people on the panel have got jobs in music is go, Why don't you just put your own record out? And I go, No, that's that ain't gonna work. They well, they don't know anyone, you know. They put their, they put it online and what what happens next? They have to they send the link to Gideon Co. It was it was great actually, but probably gets five thousand tracks bombed at every day. Yeah. You're just not gonna get you just can't physically even listen to it. You, I mean it's all about music. You have to be in, the machine, to, to get anything back from the machine, that's when the Mannix got back to the Mannix, so they realised they went to the heart of the establishment, to establish themselves, they, they didn't want to be an underground band putting out seven inch singles that no one was going to buy, because it didn't fit into any scene, did they? they? And I think that's, it's quite interesting that they actually thought of themselves in terms of being a pop band, you know, they, they, they obviously realised, you know, it's probably Richie in, this, in a way, because Richie was... Oddly, for the way the history of the band actually pan out, he was like the manager one. He? he was mm. like the uh, he was like the driving force, the conceptualist, and he probably he probably a little look at what the band was thought. You know what? We're, we're a pop band, you know. Like James got the voice and the talent, like a uh, mainstream pure pop talent. But we have also got the edgy oddness about us that makes us, you know, more interesting. So it's it's coming in two places. This. And they, they definitely went to be a pop band. They didn't make the first album to be a, a, an underground record and record it in a shed in two hours, which can sound fantastic. It really suits some bands. And they went to make they Actually, when I remember interviewing outside Heavenly, Heavenly's uh, office in the van, actually, it was a really cold day. And um, I'm, I'm Richard did most of the interview. And it, and he was just saying you know we're going to sell 20 million records you know and he wasn't joking people always think it, uh, it was a conceptual thing to say you know this is this is this is what he's is going to, you know they're, they're, I mean, they're great headlines you know I mean they're, 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 you know bands, some bands they study the music press and they know which interviews to give to which person you think yeah they are, they are playing it aren't they but it's great stuff um, but but also it wasn't done tongue in cheek they told me genuinely believed that will be number one for 10 weeks you know it was a uh, it's not bragging; they just they just couldn't understand how nobody else and everyone's
0: get that at all, you know. No, I it. The press certainly played on the sound bites that Richie and Nicky did, but the Mannix were happy to play along, didn't they? And they both both
4: both. It's both... mainly Richie. Yeah. Well, both
0: just... both sides both sides of the of this of this situation they both understood the agreement. The, the Mannix knew that they would get coverage. The press knew that they would get. Sell copies, <laughs> so they knew they needed oh, yeah. each other.
4: It was brilliant copy, you know, and that's, you know, if you're writing a story, you need a good story, don't you? And they, they understood how to create a story, which which is which is brilliant as well. But it wasn't done in a way that they were. Um, it wasn't idle bragging, you know. It was they actually believed this, you know. That's the key to this. The, you know, they thought they were going to be despised Girls who were around the time. You know that idea. They're going to be like totally mainstream, huge. Bounds,
2: was, this wasn't just said as a headline, it's said because it couldn't, that was just their understanding of the Bounds, well, of course we are, we got the songs and they were right, that's the other thing
4: yeah. it was proven, what if the time Desire for Life comes out and so they actually get to be a state
0: of I mean they'd, they'd be the least surprised people in the world <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and like you say, they had the controversy around them but they, for, most importantly they had the songs, if they didn't have the songs, they'd get nowhere
4: yeah, I mean, there's other bands who tried to do the same thing found out. You definitely needed songs to make it happen. You know, it's, it, was, it wasn't just a matter of, um, you know, just just saying we're going to be massive, and then then the next day you're massive. It doesn't really work like that, Pop. I mean, you had to say all that to, um, to get the doors to open, but then you had to push something through the doors that people could actually listen to.
0: Back to that demo, when you first heard it, do you remember what your first impressions of it were? Did it give you that excitement, or was it just... I thought it was fantastic.
4: I mean, um, I mean this is in the Baggy period, and I was listening to a lot of my stuff at the time. I also, I was listening to a lot of the American stuff, like, like Nirvana and things, and the electronic music coming out of the house. So that was kind of what was going on that period. That was in And they, in a way, they sounded like something from they all sounded retro in a sense, because you could definitely hear the clash in it. But it had a different sheen to it. It has gone through an indie kind of sheen. Um, And it's exciting to hear somebody doing that, because I haven't heard anybody doing it for ages, because even at that point, most of the bands on the punk scene, the older punk bands, they still released records, but they weren't really vital records anymore. You know, they'd done their statements in a way. So it's... um, to hear a young man doing that kind of music, it was quite novel at the time. There weren't that many young bands coming mm. out, uh, doing and it, there was something, it was quite a 77 punk in a way because it was like you could hear the clash in it, but it's also you know that Gen X thing, it was it was polished, you know, it's in the early demo that there was there, it wasn't DIY, there was definitely a, uh, a musicianship to it, songs, and also his voice cuts in because he does have a great, really great pop voice, he wasn't like. Uh, shouting or something like, like those punk uh, bands we'd be doing at the time, they actually sang, which which was quite arresting, but it's quite novel to hear that on the punk, because punk by then was quite different from what it was in the late 70s, in the late 70s, like I said before, it was a pop music, you know, it had hooks, it was, I mean, that's a great myth about punk, anybody can do it, because when you actually listen to it, it's actually quite difficult to play a lot of it, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's, they're all proper musicians, I mean, Mick Jones is a really great guitar player. It's like, you can't just go can't just do that when you're 16, you've got half an hour.
0: <laughs> do you remember what songs were on the demo? Oh,
4: God. <laughs> I can't remember that, but it don't money, so Yeah. Yeah. And I've, got, I've got the demo here somewhere, so I've got like a, I'll just do this some this lockdown thing, and going through your old cassettes. and uh So I found a really early in the interview, I found quite a lot of stuff. Because you didn't label them, you just do the interview then, you to
0: tape over it, which is pretty heartbreaking now. Or you just chuck it in a box. Yeah. We, the paper on it. You were the first person to interview Nirvana, weren't you?
4: <laughs> yeah, I did it on uh, phone. The first interview from his mum's house, up, <laughs> And uh, it was, it's something like a new band's fifteen minutes kind of interview. You know, like where you're from, what's, why, you know, there's nothing to ask. You don't. You're, you've only heard two songs. You don't know anything about them. So it's just it's an introductory piece, really. And then six months later we went to New York to interview them again, and they were on uh, their first tour of America, playing with Tad, there was like no one at the gig, there was about 30 people, it was actually on YouTube the gig, they are playing Maxwell's and Hoboken. So it's, um, I didn't even know it was on YouTube, I don't remember anybody actually filming it. <laughs> and it looks quite busy
0: the gig, but I remember a big gap, because I stood still the back watching, and there's like a big gap to the front of the stage. Did, did, did uh, they have the, I guess, stage presence and energy about them back then?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they
0: trashed all the gear, they had the set, <laughs> stuck the guitars through the roof, so it was, <laughs> <laughs> it
4: was pretty full on, you know. It's uh, yeah, It it's really intense. We stayed with them, we stayed in New York for about four days uh, in Janet Billy's flats, because uh, we're not sounds, you never got a hotel, so we always had to stay with the bounce. which. At the time, the enemy were laughing at us for, but now, you know, we, we got to know Nevada really well. I mean, I was, we were helping them get the gear in, out the flat, yeah. just just hanging out, just walking <laughs> around the streets of New York, and it wasn't a half-an-hour interview. We just, you know, we we got right under the skin of the balance. You get a good understanding of it. Of, of, you know, there there's about 15 of us slept in, the, in a room on a tiny flat. I was sleeping under a coat, because, again, like sounds. nobody ever told me anything, so I didn't realise you didn't get You didn't take a sleeping bag to New York, you just turned up and thought, oh, it doesn't seem to be a hotel where we stayed. (laughs) 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 You stayed with a bag, okay. Right, I slept on the kitchen floor, remember that, because the kitchen was the same room as the uh, front rooms, so it's all, yeah, it's Tad, Nevada me and Ian Tilton. Ian Tilton got hit by a bus, ran over by a bus, so he got his leg broke and he couldn't stay in the hospital, so they patched him all up back to the flat for a on the last day and the band were out running out getting him sandwiches and stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what memories have, eh? That's <laughs> yeah,
4: pretty bad. At the time you're thinking, oh god, this
0: is a <laughs> I think back on it, think, oh yeah, that's actually quite quite a cool quite, quite an amazing story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of sounds, uh, you were the first uh, person to put the Mannix on the cover, weren't you, back in 91? Yeah, I mean
4: the great thing about sounds was that they, they would, it was run by people really into music, so whether they particularly liked the band or not didn't matter. If you really liked the band, then then they were back, you know, they were back you. And I was i was never greedy of covers or, you know, two-page spreads, so I would often say, this band's great, but about half a page because obviously you've got paid more than a piece but it's you don't you don't know you don't want to give a band a two page spread it'll just start at the time too much pressure they're only a new bands you know half a page will get an the extra ladder then you did a two page spread the one after that you know so um, yeah so but well, with them I thought well we're going to put them on the cover they look amazing and they're talking the talk and whether people like them or not everyone's going to be talking about them when we put them on the cover you know so they, they said, yeah, cool, I mean, it's risky, but, you know, if you get the wrong band on the cover, the circulation could go down by 10 20,000, which, you know, if you're selling 60,000 copies, is a hell of a dent. You go...
0: I mean, I've never bought a magazine because of what's on the cover of my life, but yeah. it really makes a difference. You know, people, if
4: people didn't like the cover, they wouldn't buy it, you know. it's So so they were, were cage about the covers, but that, they got my argument, you know, they understood.
0: Um, oh why that would work really. Yeah, I was gonna ask, yeah. was it a person so w- was it a personal mission or were you met with much opposition with it because yeah. they were so new?
4: They, they, they were, it sounds the people that, you know, they didn't have an opposition to things. You know, they, they they were proactive, but they were practical as well because they couldn't afford to bankrupt the papers, so that would be their only concern. They wouldn't go, Oh, we really hate these fans, you know, that that wouldn't come into it but I mean it's good because as a freelancer you should be able to back up your argument this is why this should be on the cover you know yeah so it's uh, yeah so so they had my argument they agreed to it and I, I think that was the interview done outside Jeff Barrett's office uh, at Heavenly Records uh, so he just went and sat in the van um, and they kept putting 10p's to me so we did the interview while they sat at the ramps in the back of the van like a little transit van
0: and there's another interview online, um, it's actually from the John Robb tapes, so I think it's Birmingham nineteen ninety three. Cool. Um,
4: yeah, that's, that, that might be the next interview
0: you did with it. Yeah. yeah. So uh I just yeah, I listened to it the other day and they seemed in really good spirits, but what I find really funny about certainly when you hear a Mannix interview to reading it reading it is the tone. On tape you can kind of hear a dark sarcasm and you can hear their smiles shining through sometimes. But on the printed paper, I think certain statements or words will come out so differently to how how they are said. So it's very interesting to see them. That It's like a very relaxed chat, very polite, very this. And then on paper, that would be completely different.
4: Well, that was the thing about Richie. You'd say the most outrageous thing in a most disarming, mm. polite way.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, so softly yeah, like spoken. All, somewhere, somewhere like little bombs
4: dropped into an interview just to cause trouble. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere because they actually they actually did, they actually didn't, were really well-managed, you know, so that's how they would talk anyway. But now looking back on that interview, I can start seeing the wheels, very early version of the wheels coming off Richie, so the first time I interviewed them, you know they're on the you know this is a Young band just starting his journey, and he's got the manifesto in his head. There's an intensity and a humour, and, and he talks a lot. But this one, he talks less. Nicky talks a bit, mm. and also he started to drink a bit. And what's interesting about the Manics early on, they were, they were rock and roll bands, but it wasn't a rock and roll cliché band. So it wasn't there wasn't loads of booze and girls and that. You know it's but by the time he got to Birmingham which is probably only about a year later I can't remember but but he was drinking before the gig and there was definitely the talk of groupies and and this kind of did they say I think they say groupies it was was quite surprising because it was was kind of getting more turned in a rock and roll kind of way but but with a really odd very manic scene with also complete self-loathing for doing it it was almost like he was deliberately doing it to create a self-loathing you no, know, so I, I remember thinking at the time, this is this is this is really weird. He's actually there's actually a really weird dichotomy going on here. It wasn't like a normal bunch of lads in a band, you know, doing all the things that lads and bands do, whatever. That this was actually somebody he thought that was it thought that was a really shitty thing to do, but was doing it anyway because yeah yeah because he quite liked it. But I'm sure he talked about numbing the pain. Actually thinking back to it, mm. and also hating himself for doing it but also enjoying the hate from doing it so there's a lot of really weird things playing into it you know at the same time yes and, and yeah and those two shared they shared the room <laughs> While all the shenanigans going on yeah. I think I think Nicky was already for, initially they seemed like twins you know they, I mean I kind of say like a little joke innit? And, and they but by then they, they were definitely changing in personality I remember Nicky. We just talked about. He just wanted. He just wants to go home from the tour. And he, he didn't. He didn't seem to enjoy. Well, surely dabbling in the rock and roll side of it. But he didn't seem to enjoy it as much. You know. And, uh, You know. I think. I think even by then he, he was. He was. He was um, getting
0: more grown up. Not grown up. Was that the right word? But in a, in a different kind of mindset. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's. It's just really interesting to be. Must have been interesting to be around the band at that time, just before, like, the Holy Bible.
4: Yeah, right. Also, I'd you're out London, you bump into the gigs and places. I've never seen down the Camden Palace. I, mean, I, interviewed, I did interview him again after that, actually. I interviewed him pretty close to the end when he was staying in the hotel that he that he left. You know, the last hotel he was in, that one on there in Western London, I can't remember his name now. But uh, I remember interviewing there. That was with... Uh, was that James? I but by that point, he was—he was actually drinking a bottle of vodka, mm. and it—and it, and it seemed—it seemed like an Another very distant. Dis, he was—I mean—he's was kind of documented that he's in a different space by then. And at that point, you could tell he was in a different space as well. You know, it's uh, there's it was, it was definitely—he was numbing the pain the drink then. You know, and its uh, i have all tried to work out the data that because I think it's only weeks before he actually, uh, disappeared. Yeah, I wish, I wish I could say for sure. It's quite, sometimes it's quite hard to work out what things are, because you couldn't, the dates when the interview got printed, but it could, it could get printed six months later sometimes, or it could be the same week. It's really, it's really hard to actually, unless I go through my my diary, maybe I've got a diary somewhere, Everything written down and You know, not, not, Today I've got up diary you know like yeah. next Tuesday I've got to do this kind
0: of diary <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it that most speaks to you about the band I think they do write great songs and they do have that balance
4: between Melancholy and Euphoria which is always interesting and some bands get better known for one than the other I mean the four I mean the I mean um, Joy Division are known for Melancholy but they're also very euphoric as well so they actually have the other parts you know you can have both um so yeah so so, so emotionally these two things go at once which is quite interesting but um I think yeah the lyrics are fascinating also the, it's like the Bowie thing in the list you know you get into them and they talk about films and books and other music they're really into as well which which you know for a whole generation you still are still want to interview people now who were in their 40s well oh, that was a touch point band for them that was the, the crash course wasn't it crash course for the Ravers mm-hmm. like, like Bowie but you know I mean, when all this other culture gets talked about they didn't realise was there you know the, the gateway bouts so important and um, I think they look great as well I'll just, I just remember another time I, uh, I went to Paris with them that time when they did the heavenly thing you know um, they did the heavenly week, weekend with flower up ah uh, yes and yeah, yeah. yeah I reviewed I remember hanging out with them there as well that was really early days as well yeah so, yeah, so, um, yes, yeah, of course, lyrically, it's fascinating. Um, and, and the interviews were as well. There was definitely an energy in the interviews. You know, I thought the early look was really good as well. I like the way anyway, it was very DIY. But Paul Rock, Bruce, and I like the little slogans. And they'd obviously done a, um, an evening course of situationism on they? because <laughs> yeah. they understood a the situation, a slogan. And I thought it was really great that they came out of a small. Town in Wales because I've often thought a lot of the best culture actually comes out of um, small towns where, where there's no scene and there's, there's no scene pressure. It's just you on your own creating this kind of dreamscape in a, in a way, you know, this this all other world escaping to into it. And it, it doesn't in cities. There's always pressure to be cool. a Cool city is. There was, there was nothing in it. Was there? there's There'd just be a couple of metal bands, and that's it, you know. And there'd be Newport down the road. And, but you didn't feel attached to any of it, so you just, you basically became super insular and, and made your own thing out of it. And I also, they're, they're very generous with their talent, aren't they? You know, like James has always been really helpful, you know, for stuff I've done over the years. He did that amazing uh, membrane remix. I, I still can't believe he didn't just think. I thought, that i keep it
0: keeping this to I was, I was going to ask you about that because that song anyway is quite a brooding epic monster and James has just put this fierce guitar over it it's just incredible
4: and the strings and yeah. accentuating the vocal melody and actually doing the duet because that's him singing In With Me so he, he kind of rewrote it in a way and, he met, and I, 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 I would have gone this actually sounds a bit good, this, so I might just uh, <laughs> give them another bit and keep all these bits to myself and make another song out of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: how did that come about initially
4: it's just because I emailed him and asked offer musical it he said yeah and he did it for nothing as well which is great you know so I mean yeah, there's a lot of stories like that with him they're just helping mm. the bands out mixing other bands I mean obviously he should get paid and he does get paid for some stuff he does but all the stuff he'll just do because the bands don't really have punch budget you know and he, he's just helping them out so yeah and, and we've, we've been in touch over the years of course you know I mean it's Yes, I mean I, I kind of I mean I've them all, but James is the one you're going to see the most. And I, we turned up for that Hillsborough tour that we did with with the farm and Mick Jones and play some songs. I mean, it, it was, when we're making the list of people to ask, you just write the top. you just such an obvious one to ask any because because yeah, that's the other thing it's quite about it's their politics as
0: well, isn't it? You know, yeah.
4: Don't make those politics seem dour and just make them seem necessary. Don't they? They, they have a humanist side to what they do as well, you know, which is which is really cool.
0: And he just seems to be a person that can't rest with music. It it just seems like he can't have too much time off.
4: Yeah, he's always working on the music, he? and it's it's interesting to speak to the anchor about this. days, you say he's like that, you know. This he's, he's always on the go. He's always got ideas, and his, his ideas are always very complimentary with the stuff you know that you're working with, you know. And for her, of course, it was a big buzz working with him because mm. that, was, that was her band when she was growing up and stuff. And, and it wasn't a disappointment working with him, you know. I mean, I mean bands don't have to be nice. This is the weird thing nowadays that people, you know, cancel a band. Oh you can't possibly write about them or their records. They're really horrible people. Yeah, I know, yeah. Quite a lot of people are horrible. <laughs> but they make great art. you know. I, I don't have to sit in a band with them, wouldn't right? And I'm not disappointed if I meet somebody in a horrible. It doesn't put me off their records. I'm not interested. I like the records. It's one facet of them as a person. Uh, But obviously, it's better if you meet the person and they're all right. And we've got people now. And that's what he is. You know, they're not not a disappointment and things. Even at their most controversial, you could tell they 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 seemed embarrassed about it.
0: You also collaborated with uh, Nikki's brother, Patrick Jones. Providing music for his poems on the album *Renegade Psalms*, what was that experience yeah. like?
4: Well, it Was amazing, really. It's funny because I never actually met him until after the record came out. So um, it was just an email. I just emailed him because I thought I, I really like what you do. Um, I, I think it was just going to interview him or something. Then then I said, then we then we just got talking, and he said he had some poems, and I said I'll do some music for you if you want. We said, yeah, so I just, I did it. I just did it, um, I just did it all on a, on my iPad, actually, just working it all out. And then I went to the studio and finished it all off. It was actually, it's actually when I was mixing the membranes but mm. So I in the studio, because it went really well, the engineers, they've got some other project, so we just do this for, as a rest. <laughs> so so we just did it as a rest. And it came out really well, and he was really, he really liked the backings, because uh, he, because he, um, without felt we to the poems, because I, I think he's a brilliant poet, but I was also interested in trying to capture the atmosphere of his voice and of the words, so I made the pieces uh, fit in the atmosphere of, of the poems themselves. So they weren't completely random bits of music stuck to his poems. I, I just got in the mood in my head and then started working on the music to match that mood that I was getting off his poems. Yeah, poetry. It,
0: his, his, his words are very colourful and they very very vivid i suppose but your music for that is quite orchestral in places and i was wondering what it's like writing music to the spoken word do you have to approach it differently in terms of the structures or do you were you just vibing essentially
4: i was vibing but also there's a, it's a lot of freedom because there's no structure it doesn't, have to, it doesn't do verse chorus and you can actually use the voice as an instrument in a way so the sound of his voice will be an instrument in the track um I mean, yeah, the words are poor because they set the scene, but it's the way he's delivering them. Uh, the only thing is just get, get it so you're in time. Well, his voice, he's got a very strict meter, like, like Ringo Starr. You know, Ringo is mm-hmm. the tightest drummer ever. He just, he, when he starts playing, it's just perfect. And patches like that as well. His, his, his voice is really tight, so it's, it's very easy to construct tracks that fit his voice. He doesn't speed up or slow down. He's, he's just got this uh, lilt which is really good and we actually played a gig which is good we played Karis Matthews at a festival we played that and we also played uh, Spurs oh Card. wow yeah yeah so that was good he's really, I really enjoyed doing that because we're not, normally I'm at the front and I'm singing and playing but it's quite good to be in the back just <laughs> playing the keyboard parts because <laughs> I'm not really technically a keyboard player but I can play what I need to play so it's quite it's quite quite different and I don't have a keyboard so i just play them on an iPad which is great, because it's um, the beauty of tech, isn't it? You, you just have an iPad in your rucksack, plug it in, and you can play the music on this little keyboard,
0: and you can just do the poetry on top, and it was, it was like some really weird synth duo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, to me, I, I, some things you you struggle with, and to me, sometimes I find poetry and music a really difficult thing to access, but I find that album... I think partly because of the passion and the words that he's saying and the almost like rage he's got and the atmosphere of it. I I really loved it. For we need to prepare you for the workplace situation, CVs, letters, forms and basic comprehension to make you ready for zero hour contracts, minimum wage and strict regimentation.
3: No time for Miller, Sassoon or Ishiguro Oh no, those words are not for you because you, boys and girls,
0: are in set two. No room for character motivation, metaphor or Barrett Browning sonnets. Why are you so fucking astonished? Think of this as a mind colonic. Just dot the I's and fill in the gaps. Know your place and know your class and you'll be surprised how quickly each lesson passes. Yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. I think he's such a great poet, and I think and I think it was great that um, James did the record with him because
4: so he's got a bit more recognition now. Hasn't yeah. He? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's it's interesting his role in the whole thing because he definitely is the fifth manic,
0: isn't he? <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. Know, he's, so he's, yeah. He's appeared on the album. and he's, he, Everything must go came from one of his plays, didn't he? The title.
4: Yeah, and I, I think it's even more than that. I think a lot of the book lists. Hmm music comes from his collection it's, as I got to know him a bit you can see that but he's, he's so modest he would never I did say to him like, you're, you're the mentor aren't you and he goes no I'm not <laughs> when we, you're the older brother who's going to gigs first I mean you, he was, he's old enough to remember The Clash in real time whereas Nicky's is just something just beyond his his cultural mm. horizon isn't it? and he, he was wasn't was all the beat writers so in a way the Manics gang is, is a little bigger than just the four at the minute. It? It's, it's probably five it's probably somebody else I've forgotten what's But you know like bands are always bigger than the people in the band yeah. they like U2 and the Virgin Prunes when they started they're all in the same gang sharing ideas mm. what ends up being the biggest band in the world and the other one ends up being this amazing underground band that few of us really love but without the Virgin, without Virgin Prunes you wouldn't have U2 Yeah. So it's the same the matter, you know it's, it's like a little
0: it's like a little mini cultural movement to Ken and Blackwood you know, all these different players. in it.
4: Joy Vision to say, you know, Joy Vision isn't just the band. It's you got Martin Hannett's in there, Tony Wilson, Rob Gretton, Pete Saville. There's, there's a whole bunch of people chipping in ideas, or being part of the experience that makes it. And that's what Patrick was. And I think his role was a conduit. You know, he he definitely had. You know, when they're all going on about a Rush and how they're really to Rush, and he he was a Rush fan. You know, he was.
3: He saw Rush in about 1981 or something, hadn't he? and <laughs> so, so he's always, I think he's always been ahead with the
4: music thing, you know, uh, because he was older, so he had those experiences first, which is key.
0: In terms of the Mannix themselves, how do you think the band have aged? Is their progression befitting of them?
4: Yeah, completely. I'm, I'm glad that they just didn't do the one album for a start, because that was their, they were serious about that being their original plan. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Holy viable or Design for Life. I think um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think they're definitely bound to very, you know, they, they get they get really into something and that kind of cross pollinates their sound, don't they? So they'll have their Simple Minds phase, which I actually think Patrick was a big Simple Minds fan for them. But, and that, that, that sort of do records a bit nice like Simple Minds, but but with the an annex all mixed together. And then they'll get they'll go on a massive sort of. Um, low fi tip of weird underground bands and that'll, that'll cross over into their music as well uh, yeah i think i think they have it age well i think that's because really when you got like james in the balance because you've got a timeless musical talent it doesn't really matter what age you are you're always going to be a great guitar player melody writer and singer i mean when he's 70 he'll still be able to deliver you know like it will still sound great when it, which again is what you what what you need, you know you you can't get away if you don't sound any good and and I think the the odd thing is that Nicky's managed to sort of retain his kind of freaky sort of style to to, into his 50s which is good as well because I quite I quite like it when people don't you know don't
2: become sensible when they get older (laughs) you know you know you see a lot of bands from the
4: 60s in the 80s they're wearing like Omari suits it's a bit disappointing isn't it you know, it's these to look amazing and then it's just look like the Nobody wants to look like accountants. and It's, it's
2: kind of great that Keith Richards still looks like Keith Richards and then he still, you know, it,
4: in a way, like the Stones actually look like a weirder gang of pirates now than they ever did. And so it's, yes, yeah, so the, it's, it's, it's the thing still plays off to me. It? It's with the Nicky end of the band and, and the other two, didn't so just Nicky's on his own now. So.
0: <laughs> I think I think the best thing about them is they're still doing what they want to do. That's ultimately.
4: Yeah, well, they have the space to do it as well. Yeah. Don't they? You know, and they have a, a cult following, which I mean, they're not. It's not the design for life level anymore, is it? You know, they're not. I mean, they could do the one stadium gig, can't they? If you get it, if you get it right, you know, it's like a New Year's Eve Cardiff. It's got a good bill. This, you know they're going to play some of the hits. They're going to that'll work. But you know the arms they put out now, they still do well. But I imagine they go in the top ten for a week and out again. You know, it's, yeah. it's a it's a very loyal fan base, and it's good because that's a good size to be. But they're kind of right on the edge of the mainstream, which in a sense gives you more freedom in a way. It's the, the pressure to have hits now is gone. It doesn't really matter. You've got you got the hits, something. You know, it's they don't have to they don't have to like bend over backwards down like huge hits or anything it doesn't really matter there's somewhere in between a really big cult band and a really small chart band aren't they so it's and a a lot of bands end up in that place don't they I mean a lot there's very few bands that actually maintain the largesse all the way through forever it's it's, it's, I mean a lot of the bands that get big are quite unlikely bands to get big aren't they it's it's only
0: going to last a couple of years when culture is in the same place isn't it yeah, I mean, there is, I've heard, and it is very lame criticism, like it must be said, that the Manic shouldn't be in their name anymore. But I just think that misses well, I, the messages that they're still sending out. Well, it
4: didn't stop Sonic Youth, did it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it doesn't, I mean, just because the band's
0: called The Fall
4: doesn't mean that they have to fall over all the time. <laughs> it didn't, it
0: didn't quite a lot. But, you know, we said. saying that's just another thing that's, that's just another social network thing yeah stuff to gripe about I mean in a sense when they play live James still is a manic street preacher really <laughs>
4: yeah. what he sings and delivers so it's not um, it's not that, that side ever ever start doing it and it's, I mean, it becomes a brand name the name doesn't actually mean something different than the words mean anyway it Just it just represents that space that they exist in yes you know it's so it's, yeah it's, it's something that's not it's just a really odd criticism I mean I imagine if you're an early fan and you really love that thing they did early on like what they do now would seem quite it would seem quite different and you may not be able to relate to it that's fair enough. Like things things ebb and flow and things change don't I mean, they you know they're, they're definitely not a punky kind of band anymore but they're, they're, they're some different although when they do play the early stuff now they still play with a lot of power and it still sounds convincing, doesn't
0: it? Exactly, exactly. It's just one of those comments I thought, right, I've had enough of the internet today.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not
0: a lot of wisdom out there, it? So. <laughs> OK, uh, just before you wrap up, um, is it true you're working on an autobiography?
4: Yeah, as a book agent, asked me to write some chapters and a, and a chapter list so he could take it around publishers, but there's a couple of publishers quite interested already, so yeah so yeah I've written a book then I've got uh, typically I've got sidetracks I started writing this paragraph in here I thought oh, that's actually like lit- like a bit of literature then it kind of zoomed off and turned itself into a book
2: oh, wow. so it's yeah so it's kind of a book that's grown out of another book so it's it's like a
4: surreal book I don't know if, like, if I'll ever get that published but you know it's a lot, there's a lot of time in this period and also it's quite an interesting place to escape to so so I did so, so I did that so I'm just returning back to the autobiography now, um, and
0: it's, it's it's quite difficult you know to actually know what to put in because there's so much. <laughs> mm, I bet there is.
4: <laughs> and, and the other thing is you never you never think if you've done it yourself you never think it's uh, that interesting.
0: You'll have to do an ampho- exactly. um, o- anthology series of bio- autobiographies. That's where you've got to go. Seventies, eighties, nineties. Yeah, yeah, but I never think. That works to you, and I think a lot of people I know have done books, and they've done them in two, volumes years ago. Oh God, not. going to
4: buy one. They're not going to buy the second one. You can't really split your life into two halves <laughs> or whatever. It actually works. I always think they work better as one book. And when you read the book, you go into that world, and, and then you come out the other side. But you don't want to go back into it years later, or yeah But I do have an idea about to write the book. So it could be, it could be about. About, obviously it's about your own life but it's also about all the stuff you're interested in and kind of requesting your life to make sense of things so yes it's going to be more than just then. Then it, six months later I did this and then I interviewed that person and then I did that it's going it's to have a context there's going to be a reason why these things were done
0: I had Wheaty Bix for breakfast that day
4: <laughs> yeah, I, mean, when, when, in, if it, I mean that's what Charles Bukowski literally did although he wasn't always Wheaty Bix but you know and that works in a sense of the micro details of life and the mundanity of it repeating every day, I got up, had my breakfast, did it, did it got really off my head, this is Charles Bukowski, <laughs> and went back home asleep. a the next day, and it just goes round and round and round, and it's actually the, the decadent mundanity of it, it's, it's fascinating, but I was thinking to do something almost like the opposite of it, something that like, like, takes on the big, the big questions in life, you know, and and how you relate to them, but done in a very down to earth kind of way because you can't, you know, if you come from Blackpool, it's hard to be that pretentious. Really, t- I like the idea of taking pretentious ideas and um, simplifying them. So, it's, he it, like, said, I like reading things you think, fuck, I never thought of that, you know, when you're reading it. Or say music, you know, when you hear a twist of music, it takes you somewhere else, doesn't it? It's, it's like speaking when I met the guy who was a CERN project and you talked to him about the universe and he we talk about the universe having no edge and you know, it goes on forever
2: mm-hmm.
4: and, and, and the feeling you get in your mind trying to imagine that is a brilliant feeling isn't it? you know, it, it's so alien to your, because yeah. we live very claustrophobically humans in small rooms, in, in very tiny packed communities, wherever, the idea there's actually an infinity
0: out there is the opposite of the way we think or exist and it's, it's really good for your mind, it's like a psychedelic experience it does take you into a very different place well, I think we've gone extra deep there,
4: <laughs>
0: so uh, I can't compete with that. But lastly, um, I've just got a question, a couple of questions from Twitter from Christopher James. Um, he loves you, apparently, so bear that in mind. Hello, Christopher. It's important. Yeah. It's important that he knows that. So you now know that uh, he's got two oh, questions. <laughs> he's got two questions for you. Uh, is there any plans for a follow-up of Renegade Psalms with the un- incomparable Patrick Jones? Shh.
4: Yeah, we'll get it done at some point. He we, we did send me another poem, actually. I've just been so busy, I've not set the music to it yet. Uh, but I, I would definitely like to do it at some point, yeah. I think it's a great project. It'd be good to do it in a different kind of way. Well, it may just, again, the, the music may just dictate, you know, the poems may dictate how sound, the way it sounds, but it's always good to try and discipline it, go, OK, last time I did this with this, but I'll try something different with it this time, you know, see see if that works you know, capturing the same mood but with different kind of music but, but let's, let's see I mean he's, he's he's definitely got the poems but I guess he got he, got, he also got really busy with um, with, with doing this stuff for James didn't he yeah. which is which, which obviously because that's family in a sense and it's, it's going to be much more of a commercial enterprise than working with a sort of weird underground musician you're actually working with the mainstream <laughs> one I mean those poems need to be heard they need to get out to people you know he's I mean, the main way to do it is do a
0: compilation album
4: and get, you know, go through the dress book, say, go to email Johnny Marr and say, do you want to do a track to this? And then, you know, actually, that might work quite well. You know, they had Chris could do one. Wow. Chase could do
0: another.
4: Yeah, yeah. And then, then you could have, like, a really amazing compilation album with these brilliant players. Full-on collaboration. To bring attention. Yeah, and bring attention to those brilliant poems, you know, because that's what it's about, really, it's, that. that I didn't really want my name on that record being be insisting on it because he's so bloody modest. I was quite happy just having little letters on the back. It was, nothing, you know, it's his, it's his poems, you know. That's so, uh, yes, yeah, so, but in the end, you persuade me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, uh, if you could have played on any MSP record, which would it be?
4: I suppose Holy Bible is the obvious one. So Holy Bible would be the one that I would be able to find parts for just closer to my musical aesthetic you know the parts will make sense because i understand that kind of music um, creatively more you know i mean what what can i possibly do design for life it's, it's, it's all everything's there in places it's, it's musically magnificent with holy bible i could, i could probably work out other bass well not not maybe better or worse but I could work out different bass lines for it or guitar lines or sounds that will complement it because it's um yeah because it's, it's it's close to the kind of music that, that I that I create I mean I yeah. have lots of different types of music but the music I create tends to come out like, like that kind of sounds more you know
0: Up, listener George is second in line to tackle the crucifix quiz. How did you get into the band initially?
5: Uh, so uh, it was. It would have been around two thousand seven um, when. Uh, you know, the send away the tigers came out, and I would have only been about ten at the time. And I would have heard like I remember hearing your love alone is not enough on the radio, like when it when it was new and it was a big hit. I think it got to like number two in the charts or something. And um, yeah, so. I was aware of them at that point but I'd never heard of the band name before mm-hmm. like I remember the radio announcer saying like Manic Street Preach and I thought that's a weird name and I like I'd never heard it before and then I I think I was aware of if you tolerate this at the time but I it, it was just a, a song that's around that I couldn't really uh, associate with a band or something and then i remember the the turning point for me was really when autumn song came out
0: Oh, okay yeah that was released as a single afterwards and
5: uh, the first time i heard it on the radio like i mean admittedly i was still a child back then and i didn't have a great musical knowledge but just the first time i heard it i thought wow this is this is like a perfect pop song this is how like uh, this is what a pop song should be like and, um, it was, I then I went through about a few years where I might have heard a couple of Manic Street Preachers songs around. I remember hearing A Design for Life for the first time and thinking, wow, that was incredible. And I probably heard a couple of others as well, but then it was just after Postcards from a Young Man came out and they were sort of back on my radar again, being played on the radio. And I thought, I need to listen to this band in full, so... I bought all their albums up to that point, so ten studio albums,
2: mm-hmm.
5: and I, you know, I listen to them in chronological order as you do. If you if you if you if you, uh, if you want to explore a band in full, then you you start at the very beginning and you you sort of you sort of embark on the same journey that the band went on, so to be so, so to speak. And then, yeah, I just fell in love with them like that way.
0: Wow! So when you were going through their back catalogue did it surprise you it was, because because they are quite varied throughout their albums did it did it shock you
5: uh honestly it did at first yeah i mean again i was like 13, 14, 13 i think i would have been when i uh first listened to their album so again my musical knowledge was improving but still not as good as it sort of became but yeah um because I was expecting, like, the band that that wrote A Design for Life, that wrote Autumn Song, mm. If You Tolerate This. And then I suddenly have Generation Terrorists in front of me. Yeah, and then when we got to like, Everything Must Go, I thought, now this is the band that I came to listen to. You know, those first three albums were good and they were different not what i was expecting but then everything must go this this was what i was expecting this was what i was was uh, searching for when i first came to the manix yeah. discography
0: i think everyone has a version of because because they there's probably two or three different versions of the manix and everyone has their favorite version some people like the yeah. more like grand epic strings and more anthemic side some people like the more darker and twisted side so yeah absolutely what would, so would you say Everything Mesco is your favourite album?
5: No, actually it isn't. Um, my favourite album, if I had to name one, the one I always resort to is Send Away the Tigers. Oh, really? And mainly because of that. It could, it could be largely because of that, like the, the, my introduction to Manic Street Preachers came yeah. when that album came out. And in, in a way, for me, it encapsulates everything that I love about the band. Like it's almost, I would consider that album to be like, A best of, sort of uh, like a a best of in one little sort of concise package. You know, I I think maybe eighty percent of that album could have been hit singles, in my opinion. And if a band, I was thinking about this earlier. I was thinking like, if a band had released "Send Away the Tigers," but it rather than being a studio album, it was a best of of like, I don't know, ten years of their career. I think that band would still be pretty successful.
0: Hmm. Have you seen them live?
5: I have. I've seen them live, how many times is it now? Not, not
0: many, but uh, four, I think yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, four. I first saw them
5: at uh, Wolverhampton Civic Hall in 2014, when it, that, that that weird tour where they had released Rewind the Film a few months earlier and were starting to sort of Premiere tracks from Futurology. Mm. It was sort of that weird limbo period. And, mm. uh, it, yeah, I mean, it was the first time I'd seen them, so like, the first time you see a band is always pretty special. And then I saw them twice on the Resistance's Futile Tour on back-to-back nights in Birmingham and Manchester. That was great. And uh, so I really got to know a lot of the fan base
0: yeah. then because I went to the... Um, I went to the after party. There was an after
2: party for for, um, for the Manchester gig where loads of Mannix
5: fans turned up and that's probably the, the most memorable of the four gigs that I've been to uh, simply because of that. And then I saw the Cardiff Castle gig. I was there uh, for the This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours okay. anniversary tour. Yeah.
0: We'll crack on with the quiz. Yeah, sure. Right. Rules, because you've got to have rules. Uh, 15 questions, uh, three points at each. Then there's going to be three obscure questions, and that'll be six points. Okay. I think you're going to do well on this. I really do.
5: I I think, like, the expectation is high now.
0: now. (laughs) The pressure.
5: Either I I can do perfectly
0: or... (laughs) I'm going to bomb, basically. All all, all you have to do is beat the previous one contestant. Oh, what what did she get? I think she got 16. Mm -hmm. Which magazine awarded the band the Godlike Genius Award in 2008?
5: I believe that was NME.
0: That's correct. Uh, what is the hidden track at the end of Know Your Enemy called?
5: We are all bourgeois now.
0: Absolutely. And this is an obscure one. Name the beach on the cover of This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. Oh,
5: no, no. no. <laughs> I don't know this. I know it's in Wales. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just going to say... Um... Does it begin with
0: a C? I can't be given any clues.
5: No, I I, 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 I honestly honestly, add it.
0: It is uh, Black Rock Sands.
5: Okay, then. I I wouldn't have got that at all. I I know I've been told
0: that, but... (laughs) It's just one of those things, like you hear it once and then it it leaves. Uh, For what tournament did the band record Together Stronger Come On Wales for?
5: that would have been Euro 2016
0: that's correct okay these are three quick ones in a row five six and seven are quick ones in a row I want you to name the track eights for resistance is futile send away the tigers and everything must go
5: hold me like a heaven I'm just a patsy
0: removables boom smashed it Uh, One point each for those. Uh, Question number eight. In 1991, which manic said, I've had herpes since I was 15? Okay. I'm going to rule out Sean.
5: (laughs) And I'm probably going to rule out James as well. So, uh, 50-50. Who would say that? It would be either of them, wouldn't it?
0: it would be either um, of them yeah
5: <laughs> I'm going to say no, I just know I'm going to pick the wrong one I'm going to say Richard
0: uh, it's Nikki. Oh, okay. but it, like you say it yeah. could have been either of them okay another obscure one this is this is a painful one to within 10 seconds either way name the running uh, yeah name the running time of Condemned to Rock and Roll Oh, I I think I know that anyway. Come on, Uh, you can do it. Six minutes, seven? Six minutes, sixteen. So, yeah. Oh, is it? Oh. So, six points.
5: Almost screwed that up.
0: (laughs) Question ten. What band is sampled at the beginning of Motown Junk?
5: Is it Public Enemy?
0: It is, yep. Countdown to Armageddon, the song's called. Uh, so, okay. three, three points. Uh, complete the lyric. If the love between us has faded away.
5: Is it scratching at the stains?
0: Yeah, it is. It's yes. Spot, spot on.
5: I, I, it's Like with me with Manic's lyrics, is like I know what they sound like, and sometimes I'll sing along, but I don't know what the actual words are, so I'll just sort of make a noise that sounds like what James said.
0: <laughs> it's arguable that James does that as well in gigs <laughs> when he forgets yeah, yeah. the words. Okay, uh, what chart position did the album Postcards from a Young Man reach? I did well three. Spot on, free. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And the last obscure one. Give the full name of Elian, the boy who Baby Elian is about. So basically, just a surname.
5: Oh dear, I don't know this one. Um. Uh, well, it makes me think of Cuba. So I'm gonna. Uh, hispanic name and
0: just hope for the best Elian Rodriguez Gonzalez. oh so close but I liked your thinking <laughs> <laughs> okay question number 14 what massive contemporary pop song did the band cover in 2008 Umbrella Yep. Yeah. and the last question what football team does James support
5: team i know the two teams that him and nicky support and i can't remember which
2: one's which i think is it nottingham forest
0: it is correct yes yeah it's, i think it's something to do with a family member why he supports nottingham forest it does seem quite random
2: yeah i do I remember thinking well, like is nicky
0: spurs yes he is yeah yeah
2: I mean, uh, none of them are like Cardiff City
0: or anything. No, no not faithful to their own, no. 30. Oh. So that's pretty much double what uh, Faye got. Uh,
3: not
5: too bad. I'm kicking myself about the uh, Elian one because someone in the back of my mind told me it's Gonzalez. <laughs> but, like, I do. That. It was sort of named like that, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, not, I'm I'm pretty
0: pleased with that first year. Hey, you're you're on top of the leaderboard. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, let's see if I
0: stay there. That is it for episode ten. You can follow us on Twitter at MSP underscore Pod, and Facebook and Instagram under Manic Street Speakers like follow or subscribe whatever it is you do on your podcast apple choice until next time
1: we love you one time we love you two times we love you three fucking times
0: fuck queen and country repeat after me hey <laughs> <laughs> the funds. the fonds has made an entrance